Welcome to a new episode of Rising Tide, the Ocean Podcast. This is David Helvarg, and our co-host, Vicki Nichols-Goldstein, was recently partying at the Inland Ocean Coalition's annual Mermaid Ball. So how was it, Vicki? Did everyone shake their tails? Oh, we shook our tails way into the night, and it was a fantastic success. Great. Today, we're pleased to be speaking with Marta Guterres-Groundish, the founder and executive director of Azul, a grassroots organization working with Latinx people throughout the Americas to protect our ocean and coast. Based in California, where she helps organize an annual Ocean Day at the State House and sits on the governing board of the California Coastal Conservancy, Marcy also works nationally and globally, having co-authored a report for the UN as part of her efforts to help pass a global plastics treaty. But before we get into your work, Marcy, Tell us about your first connections to the ocean. Hi, uh, thank you so much for having me, David, Vicky. It's it's a pleasure and an honor to be here. I've I've long followed your your podcast, so I'm very excited. Um, so my first connections to the ocean. I grew up in uh, what we call the corner of La Esquina Latinoamérica, the corner of Latin America, two blocks from the ocean. Um, at the time, it was actually clean. We were talking about this issue with. Um, switch out full and my first one of my like one of my first um memories is actually falling asleep to the sound of crashing waves so very very lucky to have grown in this beach town in tijuana and um you know every night i would fall asleep to the sound of crashing waves and the smell of salt air so it's something that's been in the background you know even from like my family background etc parent you know dad and navy grandpa and the ports um so it's always been you know something that goes through our veins i think did you get motivated to move towards a, a life and a career in the ocean or how did how i did had it- no idea that that was a thing I'll be honest. I had no idea that that was a thing. I didn't know what I wanted to do. Eventually, I decided on international business, which led me to this fishing industry. Um, and that's how I got over to conservation. So I was working for um, an aquaculture, you know, an aquaculture outfit uh, throughout the U.S. and the Americas. And what I saw there, the overfishing, the pollution, et cetera, combined with this, I think now has been off this very discussed um, 2006 article that said that the ocean was going to be empty by 2048. That really shook me up because I was seeing this every day, not just in the in the fishing of the of the actual, you know, tuna that was going to get fattened up, but also in what they ate and trying to figure out where to go find it, et cetera, et cetera. And so I decided to, I didn't know at the time, but I decided to leave that behind. And so my whole thing is that I used to sell fish and now I save them. Okay. So you were working in an aquaculture facility that was raising- A company that had several, several farms. Oh, tell us a little bit more about that. Uh, you know, when I first came into the, into nonprofit, into nonprofit, I remember I was at a meeting for, um, the Marine Fish Conservation Network, and they're talking about this, and they're talking about the nets and this and that. Like, you know, we've never talked with anybody that actually is in the business. And I'm like, oh, yeah, I know that. And so it was so funny because one of my first experiences in the nonprofit field was actually being like scared away into an office in DC and getting like a brain dump. Like, okay, what about this? What about this? What about that? Like, we've never talked to anybody. So um, I think I left a lot of a lot of that there. But yes, um, I worked in logistics for this company that had you know tuna coming out of mexico into japan that had icelandic uh, connections etc and you know i 
didn't know anything about fish or anything like that. I learned the job, but it was a very challenging. Also, I will say, be honest, very um, good opportunity for me. Um, and I learned a lot, but I also learned a lot about what was ailing the ocean firsthand. 2006 was the report on how fisheries were collapsing. But also, I remember in 2006, there was a poll that showed that of demographic groups in the United States, Hispanics were most concerned about ocean conservation. And I thought, great, this this is going to inspire people to really uh, focus on organizing this community. Didn't seem to happen until, I guess, 2011, you founded Azul. And, and tell us how that came about. So, you know, I come back from abroad. I go to work here in San Diego with um, a nonprofit called Wild Coast. Uh, Serge gave me my first opportunity there. And um, I ended up being a part of this process in Southern California, which was, you know, designing the marine protected areas for, for the South Coast. And I didn't really know anything about inclusivity or diversity or anything of that effect. And um, I go into this process, there's 60 something people that are supposed to be representative of Southern California from Santa Barbara to the border. And I am the only one that speaks Spanish. There's no materials. There's no materials in Spanish, God forbid other languages. I'm sitting there as a newbie. I have no idea of anything. I'm like two months into my nonprofit experience. I get thrown into this. Um, what worked out is that a lot of people that were in the process I had had, I had known at some point as my vendors or um, clients, et cetera, from the fishing industry, but there really wasn't any guidance there, just thrown off the deep end. And I did know that people were interested just in terms of like, oh, I wonder if my mom knows about it. I wonder if my cousin knows about it. I wonder if so-and-so knows about it. And there was no uh, like there was nothing whatsoever. And so I sat down, started translating things in Spanish. Some things were just very common sense because they were like, oh, we're having a public hearing, you know, in a yacht club in Orange County on a Tuesday at like 10 o'clock. And we wonder why there's no people here. It's like, well, you know, so some, some people are, work. <laughs> some people work. And some people, even if you have like on a Saturday, might not understand that they actually could go into this yacht club or may not feel welcome or may not know where the yacht club is, right? So they will never live down this yacht club thing, I swear. It was just such a such a demonstration of how is constant, how like just exclusive ocean conservation was in California, even in California at the time. And so that was a really wake up, big wake up call. I really wanted to do this work. I really wanted to continue doing ocean work. I knew the communities were interested. At the same time, I was having, you know, um, I was having to convince people around me to give me the space, the, the resource, et cetera. And so um, I finished my work with the MLPA. Um, those, you know, particular areas were approved in December 2010. Um, I moved to San Francisco to you know, try to get some space. Um, actually, I moved to the East Bay. I wanted to be somewhere that I could learn more from other people, that I could have other jobs. And what I decided was that I really wanted to start a school. I wanted to have something where all I did was focus on working in community with community on ocean conservation. We had seen this, this interest back and forth. And so, you know, I, I grabbed everything. I moved to San Francisco. I got three jobs and I, I, I went at it until we got a little bit of like interest and funding and the rest is history. So what most inspired and surprised you in, in setting up this, I believe, first 
Hispanic Ocean Conservation Organization in the U.S.? It was really interesting. Things that surprised me was uh, people not understanding how important this was, even in California. And when I started, I was just, you know, looking into California. So how did you go about it? Obviously, you have this passion to engage community. What did you do? How are, how were you I just growing people? <laughs> I could just talk I mean, to people. I just talked to people. And, um, you know, I think the biggest thing that really put us on the map. So one of the big, big, big fights and, and David, I'm, I'm pretty sure this is where I met you was around the, um, the shark fin ban. And so, you know, we're in Sacramento and we're having this conversation, which is a very, very delicate and as it should be conversation around issues of culture and, you know, um, racism and, you know, conservation, et cetera. But at one point, you know, people start saying, and I kid you not, if they ban the shark fin now, they're going to ban tortillas next. And I'm like, excuse me? What? Yes. And so ban what? I, I missed Tortillas that. next. Oh, you're kidding. No, I'm not. That's a big leap. Yes. <laughs> but that's, you know. That that's our, what corporations do. Yes. They divide. But our side was also so monochromatic that we didn't have enough people to say, eh, hold on, that doesn't make sense. And so I I start thinking, I'm like, well, hold on. Um, cockfighting is also banned in the in California. Mm-hmm. And that is a cultural tradition of mine. And yet we decided, this is why I went and told a couple of the people, members in the Latino caucus. And then you, we decided that it was barbaric and unnecessary. And we banned it. You banned this 10 years ago. And so... Some things could be a cultural tradition. It could be a part of your culture. And yet we could evolve out of them, right? And this is what we did with cockfighting in California. And it is no longer allowed. And I don't find it to be, you know, a problem. I understand that at one point it was part of our heritage and tradition. But we understood that it was a problem and we evolved out of that. And that's really how I got a bunch of people to jump on board. (laughs) But it took having that conversation in that shared cultural heritage one-on-one and knowing that and understanding that to be able to have that connection and that discussion, if that makes sense. Shark banning was kind of a good start for Azul. And then you yes. went, then you went into plastic pollution, which yeah. definitely has direct impacts on the yeah. Latinx community. And maybe you could talk about that. So, you know, every time, that we talk and we're out in public and we would out go out and do the events and tabling and et cetera. And this is me, you know, amidst my other two, three jobs at the time, because there's no funding for us at this point, there was offers to go in house in other places that would cover the funding, but I really, really wanted to have it be its own, in, in, you know, independent thing. And that went really far in terms of people trusting us like oh you're not just like some sort of like outpost of somebody right and so but that took time and money and effort and so here I am between my you know three jobs trying to table and what people keep telling us over and over again they're concerned is plastic pollution people are very concerned and this is mostly around the bay area um la they're extremely extremely concerned about plastic pollution and so, you know, there's been a, a, a proposal at this point for several, several years 
on banning plastic bags, single-use plastic bags in California. It's, again, with the stupid, lazy conversations. No, no, we can't do that because Latinos don't know how to use reusable bags. And I'm like, excuse me? What? Yeah, no, people are too poor to care. And this is like advocates, some in our field, some in the opposition. There's all the astroturfing, et cetera. And so one day they repeat it enough that I get like so you know, peeved off. And I'm like, well, hold on. My grandmother had a bag. My grandmother had a reusable bag that she used for, you know, decades. And so I go and I, you know, I spend half my rent, which I shouldn't have, but like I spend half my rent to get like this thing done, um, which is, and I'm pointing at the Vuelve a Tus Raices del Plastico uh, poster, which I'll send you. But um, it is a, what we call a grandmother bag, right? And it says, go back to your roots, leave plastic behind. And so I start bringing my bag everywhere in Sacramento. And all of a sudden, the conversation starts changing. So it's like, oh, yeah, that's not that hard. Oh, yeah, we know how to do that. It's like, oh, not only do we know how to do this, we can show you. We've been doing this for generations. And so that's where the conversation started. Um, you know, it took a lot of work, both in Sacramento and in California, op-eds, you know, um, sort of like um, town halls, like that sort of mobilization. But people were really interested. This is something that really, really resonated with people. And I think that folks cannot really um, underestimate that the conservation movement has done a very bad job at engaging communities of color. And it's it has historically been with a tinge of condescension, sometimes very condescending and patronizing. And so for us, it was something that we were like, no, no, hold on. We know how to do this. We know how to lead. And so imagine the new avenue, a new campaign where people were not being talked at, but really asked to step in and lead. And I think that's where we really hit the jackpot with that one. And eventually that went on to pass with, you know, Latino uh, legislators as the actual um, as the actual sponsors of the bill. Okay, a quick break here. I'm sure you recognize my voice. I'm your co-host, David Helvarg. I'm also executive director of Blue Frontier that sponsors Rising Tide. If you enjoy our talks with the watermen and women making a difference for our ocean world, you might also want to check out our other work at www.bluefront.org. There you'll find links to many other projects, including our Blue Movement directory of over 1,200 ocean activist organizations, many near you. Again, check us out at bluefront.org. And if you enjoy Rising Tide, the Ocean podcast, spread the word to friends and families from sea to shining sea. And now back to the show. In terms of plastics, you helped the UN uh, on a report on the environmental justice aspects. And there's now a global plastic treaty in the works. The U.S. was very good, um, surprisingly good in helping pass a high seas treaty. Yeah, yeah. Late in the game. The U.S. came late to the game, but it, it did the right thing in the end. Not so good on a global plastics treaty. Not yet. Where's, uh, not so good. Not yet. So so that's a campaign that Azul and others have to get the U.S. to be on the right side of history in terms of moving beyond petrochemical-based plastics. Correct. And, um, you know, for example, it's something that, in my experience, I never had personally growing up here in Tijuana. For example, looking back on that, um, on that, this was really a big wake up call for me. Looking back on that explosion at the Chev, you know, this plant in 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 Richmond back in what was it, twenty twelve? Twenty twelve, right in my neighborhood. Yeah, 
Yeah. And I was, I was in the neighborhood August, 2012, I think. And it was such a wake up call in terms of like, holy smokes, people live here every day and people have to deal with this every day. And I remember going back over the freeway a couple of miles away and it was still that bad over there. And it's just like, I can't even imagine. And then you start looking at like how things are made and where this goes and the, you know, the subsidies and the infrastructure. And then like this insidiousness of like, oh, well, but you should be happy that that plant is there because there's no other jobs. And I'm like, well, no, there was another plant before that moved away because this was too dangerous. And so we just really have to be very open at looking at context and not just seeing what's in front of us now. And so that that's really what kind of moved on the plastic, uh, the plastic, um, paper i was at a conference i spoke about the pay i spoke about this experience around you know um environmental justice because what, what people don't realize and thankfully that is changing quite a bit is that you know we look at plastic pollution as like a marine pollution issue and you know the pobrecita the little uh, turtle with the straw stuck up its nose and that's very bad but the problem is that by the time that straw you know gets up the the turtle's nose it has left behind a wake of destruction that is just the last thing. It is very bad, but it's not the first thing. It's not the only one. And we have left a wake of destruction in this mist. And, um, and that's where we need to talk about. So lo and behold, there was UN people in the, in the room when I was speaking about this. So they asked me to come to Geneva and speak to them. And then that, that's where they commissioned our paper. So it's very exciting um, because it's the first time that the UN in a paper that has its own seal says, environmental justice is an issue of you know plastic is an issue of environmental justice here's how it hinders the achievement of all the sustainable development goals and we thought you know when we started with the paper we thought oh maybe it's going to be like three or four of them you know life underwater etc no it's every single one of those goals could be hindered by plastic pollution if you look at the whole context and so it was a really big wake-up call for us and that's where we're still involved in this issue and again because people are interested and and the people don't really understand the whole life cycle of plastic. Right. Well, I, I I am lobbying to call it a yeah. death cycle because it's not life. Right, a death cycle. <laughs> and given the ocean climate crisis we're in, that that climate change is actually changing the physical nature of the ocean. It's it's temperature, it's chemistry, it's color, it's circulation. So I guess I'm I'm wondering what Azul uh, sees as as the future. You know, I think that. Uh, there, there's many solutions out there. Um, for us, we like to get very, very good at a couple of them. Like I said, we're very lucky to work with many people. Uh, many organizations don't necessarily feel the need to be the ones on everything. Uh, for us, we're focusing again on 3030 and, you know, habitat protection, highly and fully protected areas as part of this effort. Um, obviously, also looking at other ideas and other types of protection, but just really very focused on making sure that that does not leave the conversation. So that's one. And then the uh, so plastic, plastic treaty, uh, very important, because if we do this right, this could be the biggest single, you know, global treaty since the Paris Accord and having learned the lessons from the Paris Accord, right? Because like that is a thing, but there are a lot of things that could have been done better, especially around, you know, the voluntary plans. But there are so many lessons that are learned from there that are being hopefully incorporated into this treaty. And I think the other thing is really focusing in human you know, human-centered conservation. And what do I mean by this? The fact is that everything that's bad for people is bad for the ocean. So if we talk about 
you know, illegal and unregulated and unreported fishing. That's something that I tell people, like anytime that you have like cheap fish, somebody's paying the price. It's the ocean, it's people, it's labor. And so those are the three big things that we're focusing on this year. Um, there's many things that we support and 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 um, engage with other people, but those are, you know, with our small team, those are like where we're focused on. Again, okay. your three areas of focus this year. So I would say habitat protection, that's 30-30. Uh, pollution, that's um, pollution and environmental justice, that would be on plastics treaty. And um, I guess on fisheries would be IUU, the illegal underburden and unregulated fishing. You're working in very specific areas. You've got the uh, Latino, Latinx community. Do you have a particular message or a piece of advice that you like to share with young people or aspiring conservationists who are working and passionate about protecting the ocean? Do more of it. Step <laughs> in. We need, um, I think one of the things that's very important is that we need all kinds of people and not just all kinds in terms of cultural or ethnic provenance, but interest and experience and focus, right? So like we obviously need scientists and we need, um, you know, we need policy advocates, but we also need musicians and artists and communicators. And um, I don't know everybody, because the fact is that we need to make sure that we're reaching out as many people as possible. And so, for example, um, for like the longest time, people would tell me when I'm speaking in Spanish, sorry, when I, when I tell people what I, what I do when I'm telling them in Spanish what I do, half of the time they respond to me by singing. People will sing to me. Uh, random people new to me will sing to me. And there's a specific song called En el mar la vida es más sabrosa. So life is more delicious in the ocean. And it's a what you would call an old standard in Spanish from the 50s. And everybody knows it. And so there is this culture already there. And so what happened was, and this is where the parties come from, right? Um, ocean joy, so to speak, that's imbued in all of our work. You know, I want to make sure that I'm reaching out to everybody, whether they're coming to our website or they're, they're reading the ocean news or whether they're dancing. And so this is a little bit where it came from. We wanted to bottle up that ocean joy and also narrative change, right? Like who gets to be an ocean advocate? Who gets to be an ocean person? And for the longest time, we just heard, and with no disrespect, the Beach Boys, I love the Beach Boys, but this idea that that is the ocean culture. And at the same time, I'm getting sung by many people. So we went and we created an actual record. And so there's a record with people from the Buena Vista Social Club with musicians from all over. And it's all old standards in Spanish from all over Latin America that all have an ocean theme and there's actually like a, a, a policy part to it. So we have a whole, um, a whole anthology of essays around it. It's like, okay, this song actually talks. And at the time it was not talking, for example, about climate change, but this song talks about um, just you wait until the oceans rise. I'm right. like, well, I hear this song and it makes me think about sea level rise. Okay. And so this song talks about a little crab and I'm like, I'm now thinking about ocean acidification. And so like all these things that like, sometimes you just got to get people dancing and talk to them about it there. Right. And so we did the the rollout um, and we had, you know, the biggest, the biggest coverage in Spanish all over the continent about 30, 30, because then we're like, Oh, Look at our record. By the way, this is a campaign for 3030, right? Um, so you just got to get very creative and reach people everywhere. And so like, I think that the focus there and the, the advice there is like, where do we overlap? And that's, you know, organizing. David, you're an organizer. Like you're like, okay, 
here I am, here they are, or here the this person is, and where do we overlap? And sometimes it's music, sometimes it's policy, sometimes it's you know art or etc. And so like you just got to go and find people where they are, and that's my biggest advice: inclusiveness. Just bring it yes. on. Everybody has a role to play. For exactly. I'm not familiar with that original song you were mentioning. Could you sing a stanza or two? Um, I can definitely, I'm, I, I'm not a great singer, but yes, it's not original. It's from the fifties and the song is en el mar, la vida es más sabrosa, en el mar te quiero mucho más. And so it's a whole song about this. I will send you the record because you can probably <laughs> use it on there. It's licensed and everything. And it was, you know, this idea, by the way, here's a funny, funny part. The person that created the record, the person I, I haven't played a, a, a instrument in 20 years, probably but the person that actually, you know, did the record for us. He is like fifth generation musician, except, and everybody in his family is a musician, except for his mother, who is what? A marine biologist. Oh, so it was a really wow. cute little coincidence. And like, it was like meant to be. And so we've done, we've explored a lot of that. There's podcasts now, there's the record, there's uh, a documentary. So the idea is always to find people where they are and try to get that information in front of as many people as possible. So that's what I mean when I say we need musicians, we need artists, we need architects, we need um, obviously policy, lawyers, uh, science, et cetera. We need everybody. All, if- all hands on deck. And if people want to get a hold of the record or or learn um, more about Azul, um, it's yeah. In the- so so and then um, azul.org is for all of our of our um, like our actual website. You can find the links there. Enelmar.org, which Priscilla just put on there, and we are working on that. It's on Spotify at the moment, but we're working on making it more accessible. Well, I'm going to definitely check that out this afternoon. That's going to be super fun. Marcy, it was fantastic talking with you and hearing the success of Azul and all of your experience. Thank you so much for joining us on the Rising Tide Ocean podcast. And I can't wait to listen to that music a little later today. Gracias. Thank you so much for having me. Rising Tide is a production of Blue Frontier, co-hosted by David Helberg and myself, Vicki Nichols-Goldstein, with support from Natasha Benjamin, and Ellie Curla. Rising Tide's editing services and technical support is provided by Studio Kate May. The theme song is written and performed by Ethan Kenbard. You can find Rising Tide, the Ocean podcast at bluefront.org or download it from Apple, Google, Spotify, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Off in the salty ocean, off where the waves roll free The sparkling water rises, then crashes to the sea Out amongst the breakers, you'll have no need to fear It's true, it's the blue frontier Tear, tear, Off in the salty ocean, off to the blue frontier Sparky, come here, buddy. Sparky, there you are. Good boy, Sparky.